It's, uh, it's great to be here again. Helen and I have had a lovely day back at, back at Grace Church, hanging out with some people this afternoon as well. Um, it, it, is, it is, I guess, again, like coming home. We've not been away that long, but um, we miss you guys. Uh, and you have a wonderful church. Um, so we moved, we actually moved house last February. Uh, though Helen and I are both still working in Nottingham, still looking for work in Birmingham. So are back here every week, uh, and I tend to stay over a few nights. So actually, several of you have hosted me um, while I've stayed over here for a few nights. So again, thank you. Uh, please keep doing that. Some of you, I think, are still in the schedule for the next few months. So uh, <laughs> I, I definitely need somewhere to stay. Um, but no, we really appreciate that, and you are dear friends. Um, wonderful. So, Exodus chapter 32 is what we're doing today. We're carrying on the Exodus series. Uh, I'm going to be in chapter 32. I'm going to read the first few verses to us, but we'll be kind of working our way through the whole chapter. I'm not going to read all of it. I'll just kind of narrate some of the story. But if you've got a Bible with you, I think it will help you to have it open because you can kind of see where what I'm saying is coming from. Um, and I'm going, to read, uh, I'm going to read from verse number one. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's been something like 40 days since the people of Israel saw Moses. Um, he's gone up Mount Sinai. He is meeting with God. He has received from him two tablets of stone in which the finger of God has inscribed the ten words that we might know as the Ten Commandments. And he's done it twice, so they've got two copies. And he's established the, the covenant, the agreement between Israel and God and laid out to Moses how they should live and what their nation should look like. But for the people of Israel, down at the bottom of the mountain, sat in the desert, they don't really know very much of that. Um, that they've, not seen, they've seen lots of sort of thunder and lightning at the top of the mountain as the presence of God is there, but they don't know what's happened. It's been 40 days. They've not seen Moses. The presence of God, the pillar of cloud or of fire, has not been with them because it's, it's gone with Moses. And so they're starting to get, I guess, a bit insecure, a little bit vulnerable. Not quite sure what's going on. It's a little bit like that I don't know if any of you have had this, if any of you have worked an office job, where your boss is away for a couple of days. Um, and if, at least for the first day or two, it's sort of, it's exciting. Perhaps there's no one looking down your neck. Doesn't really matter quite so much what you do. Maybe you can have a few races with the office chairs. You know, it's, well, I haven't done that in years, but I have done it. It's kind of fun. You can do a few kind of skateboard tricks on them if you try hard enough. Um, you can, it's a thing. 
and <laughs> there we go. Uh, and perhaps, I guess, after a few days away, it, it starts to be that there, maybe there are some things in your job that you, you can't get done anymore. That it's just, you can't progress things. Because your manager's not been around. After all, they, they have a job. They are there for a reason. And it comes a point, if they've been away for a while, where you just kind of can't get anything done. It's a little bit like that, but bigger for the people of Israel. Moses is, is not around. He's been away. He's the guy who leads them. He's the guy who tells them what God says. He's the guy who shows them where they've got to go. He's the guy who encourages them to keep going. And they haven't seen him in ages. And they're not quite sure what's going to happen next. And so that's the context in which they ask Aaron what seems to us a completely mad thing. Please make us a bull. It is so far away from our, our conception, our understanding, that it seems really weird. To them, it's quite culturally normal. They've come out of Egypt, who almost all of their, uh, their religious worship would be based around seeing images of the gods that you worship, physical um, idols that you would see as the gods. They, the other nations in the desert, the Canaanite nations, um, all have worship based around a physical image made of wood or stone or metal that represents and actually is the place that the presence of that God dwells. So they're asking to be like everyone else. They're not asking something that's completely out of the blue, though it seems very strange to us. Um, and so Aaron does that. He gives in. He makes a, a young bull in the kind of in the it says calf in here, but that's essentially what it means, a kind of a young bull full of power. Um, that would be a symbol in the culture of, of power, like you might think a powerful animal is a lion, it's probably what our nation would think, but they would think bull. So they make the most powerful animal they can think of um, as something to focus their worship on. Probably an image of the god Baal, who, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, is one who Israel gets in lots of trouble with later on. And Without necessarily having thought about it like this, they have broken the first two words on those tablets of stone that God has inscribed with his finger. The first one, have no other gods before me. The second one, make no image of the Lord your God. And it, in a heartbeat, they've turned away from him before they even really understand the fullness of what they've done, I guess. And then we read this, uh, they revel in worship or as, uh, as the ESV has it, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Which sounds a bit strange. You think, what, what's that look like? It'll look a little bit like a Saturday night in Nottingham, I'd imagine, sort of drunken revelry, um, and then beyond, into probably into an orgy. And that's what they did in worship in front of this golden bull, which again, to us, probably seems bizarre that they would do such a thing, but that is how many of the nations around them would worship. A storm god who is a crop god, who is a fertility god, like Baal, would be worshipped with that kind of thing. And I think, I read something like this. Right? It seems quite distant. It's clearly, the people of Israel, there's not something wrong. Um, it's not right. They've turned away from God. But so different to kind of our daily experience, I don't necessarily know what to do with it. Don't have much um, interaction with idols. Don't have any real temptation to forge an image um, out of something and, and choose to worship it. 
not like when my boss is away for a few days, I think, oh, I know what I must do. I'll make a tinfoil cow and put it in his seat. Because he'll probably, that'll let me do what I want. And they'll agree all my different proposals and everything will move forwards. And I think, I think my boss Tony would find that very strange if he came back from holiday and I'd replaced him with his seat with a, a tinfoil cow. Um, <laughs> but it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's so far from our experience that it just sounds, sounds very strange. Um, and I was in, uh, a few years ago now, I was in Italy um, at a place called Pompeii. Some of you might have heard of it. It's a, it's a Roman town that was destroyed by a volcano, so it's very well preserved because it was kind of all destroyed at once. And every home, we noticed, had in it like a little, um, little niche in the wall, which was where we were told the household gods would have been. I think they were destroyed in the volcano, probably would. But every home would have a place where people would have fashioned out of wood or stone the gods for their house. It seemed so strange. And then noticed around Italy, actually, lots of walls had little, little niches in them where there would be statues of the Virgin Mary. And I kind of came home thinking, oh, Italians haven't changed very much, and, and left it there. I didn't connect the thought all the way along, which is, am I like that at all? So I don't make, any, I don't make models and put them in, in holes in my walls of my house, because that's really strange. But do I do anything that's at all similar? There's um, the, the famous church planter John Calvin in his most famous um, book starts with this line, the heart is a factory of idols. I think that's a strong opener. Um, <laughs> the heart is a factory of idols. And then he kind of moves on to talk about, about what God is like, but the heart is a factory of idols. See, what, what Calvin would argue, and I think he's right, is that what we all do is we fashion for ourselves things to worship that are not God. So that's one way of describing what sin is. I might call it idolatry, but it's one way of describing what sin is. We fashion for ourselves something to worship that is not God. And we do it so often that we don't notice. And actually, our hearts are factories for them. It's not like we make one, but we, we make quite a lot. Think about it like this. Some of you may have had um, perhaps an experience at work where uh, you, you're asked to put in some more hours and you have to work a little bit harder. And you notice that over time uh, that people seem to respond to you well when you put in some more hours and you work a little bit harder. And you think, this is great, it's a good thing to do. going to work as well as I can. going to make sure that my bosses are happy with me. And then over time, you find that you put in more hours and more hours and more hours and more hours. And it doesn't take that long until you, if you look at your heart, it's like, why are you doing this? Well, because somehow your job has become the most important thing in your life, rather than God. Well, that means that your job has become an idol. Anything that becomes the most important thing in our hearts that is not God is what I would call, looking at this text, what I would call an idol. Something that we worship that's not God. Or maybe for those of you who are studying, it's that. You, you pour all of yourself into your, into your work uh, of studying, your work that you've got to do at school or at university. To the point that you think, well, what is the most important thing in my life? It's that I get the right grades. Well, that's not right. That is not and cannot be the most important thing in your life. But it's quite easy to get there. It's the thing you do all day. 
or maybe, I think this is very common, success in whatever arena of life you find yourself in, whether the church or um, the workplace or the place that you're studying or somewhere else, it becomes the most important thing in your life. It is though, it's like, well, I've been given an opportunity, so I must do well so that I get given more opportunities. That makes sense. That's logical. But the reason that you find that you're doing it is because you want people to think well of you or because you want to get to a particular place or because you want to be seen as successful or simply none of those things, but somehow it still is the most important thing in your life that you do well at, whatever this thing is. Or I, I found this one actually quite frequently, but ministry, or what I might call serving the church, that is obviously a good thing to do. It is something that I give a lot, I suppose, of my time outside of my paid job to do, to serve the church. And you know what? It's so easy for something that really ought to just be, well, it's all about serving God in the most obvious way possible, to turn into something different. And to become, actually, it's all about doing well at that. And somehow that, the serving of God rather than God himself, becomes the most important thing. Well, that means it's become an idol. It's become a false god. It's become something else to worship. Or our comfort. How would you know your comfort is an idol? Well, you make decisions to avoid pain. You might think, well, who doesn't do that? Well, sometimes God calls us to do things that are really hard. And you choose not to do them in order to avoid pain. Or that means actually that is more, that your avoidance of pain is more important to you than God. In, um, in the culture around us, it would be the case for many people that their selves would be the most important thing in their life. They would not put it like that. I mean, who'd want to sound so self-centered? But that's the way that we think. It's like my choice, what I want, the thing that gives me pleasure, surely that must be right. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, that must be the right thing to do because it brings me pleasure, because it's what I want to do. But what you've done there is you, you, you've put yourself before God or your desires, or your choice. And, and actually what all of these things are, because most of the things that I've just said are good things. Do you notice that? They're not bad things in and of themselves. But what we do, what we keep doing, dear friends, is that we make gods who give us what we want. Because that's so much easier than, than the true God who doesn't always do that. How would you know? Because that's, that's kind of the question, isn't it? How would you know? It's easy for me to say, actually, we've kind of got a problem. There's, there's idols in our hearts. There are things that we worship that are not God, that we turn our eyes, rather than being fixed on him, maybe all the way away, or maybe just like half a centimeter to the right. And it's like, oh, I'm worshiping an image of God that's just not quite like him, that I have somehow changed him to be more like I would like him to be. How would you know that you've done that? I mean, I'm going to give you a few, um, I guess, diagnostic questions that you can ask yourself. Um, here's a way to think about it. Where do you sacrifice and to what? Where do you give your best is what I mean by that. Where does the best of your time and your talent and your money go to? What occupies your time? What do you spend your money on? Where do you give what you're good at? 
And then with those things, because for many, you might be thinking, particularly if you've been following Jesus for a while, you might think, well, that's, that's the church or that's God. What's your motivation when you do that? Because I don't find that first question that hard to answer, but this one's starting to get a bit trickier. What's your motivation? Why are you doing it? If you, if you start peeling back the layers in your heart, which is so much fun, um, <laughs> oh gosh, I mean, I don't know if you're, I'm going to assume you're a little bit like me, but it's not a fun thing to do. Start peeling back the layers and have a look. It's like, why am I doing that? When we get down to the bottom, what is your motivation? Is it because I want to glorify God? Because if so, well done. Because that's superb. Well done. In reality, what you will find, probably if you have followed Jesus, is you'll find, I want to glorify God. Right down there at the bottom, add three or four other things. Because we're quite complicated beings, and we always have ten reasons for doing anything that we do, and you're normally aware of one of them. But there will be lots of different motivations going on in your heart when you do something that is good, the one to glorify God is a great motivation. The others, we possibly need to think about. Why are they there? Do they really matter? Have they turned into something bigger than they are? And here's the question that I always think is a real kicker. What, what would happen, what would you, how would you feel if you stopped doing whatever it is that you might think, oh, that's a bit too important to me? What would happen if your job disappeared? What would happen if your studies disappeared? What would happen if your ministry opportunity or, or, or serving disappeared? What would happen if that relationship disappeared and it wasn't there anymore? Imagine it. I mean, probably, there's all good things. You, you'd probably think, oh, that would be, be sad. That would be a normal response. That's perfectly healthy. But I think it would be a bit of pain. Perfectly healthy. I mean, I think, I'm not quite sure what I'd do for money. Yeah, sure, perfectly healthy question. But ignore that for a second would it feel like the bottom had dropped out of your world? And if you're honest with yourself, would it feel like everything had sort of turned upside down? Like something that somehow makes you you was taken away? Because if so, that's an idolatry problem. That's what an idol looks like. Something that when we metaphorically or really take it away, we think, oh, Something that makes me me has gone. I mean, that's a lie. But it can feel like that so easily. So easily. And, friends, we, we are like that assembly line, like that factory that John Calvin talked about, an assembly line of idols. And that means that, and I'm speaking for myself, but I suspect for all of us as well, we are riddled with this. It's like what our heart does these days is churn out a new idol. I'll worship that and I'll worship that and I'll worship that. Just keep on going. And then it's important that you hear this. I believe fully that Jesus tonight would like to, each of you who follow him, would like to point out something that he'd like you to change. He'd like to point out an idol that he'd like you to deal with. But I do think he'd only like to point out one. And I think it's important that we get that. It's like, I think our hearts are like an assembly line. Today, Jesus is interested in the first one. He would like us to deal with it and take it away. Tomorrow, he will be interested in the next one. And that's how the Christian life works, unfortunately. Um, what it is, it is a continual, um, I suppose, walk of so Jesus saying, I'd like you to deal with that. And you go, okay, I'm sure you can help me. And then he does, and then we can. And then he goes, great, well done. 
and now this one. Great, well done, and now this one. Great, well done, and now this one. And I tell you that because you do not have to deal with all of the things now, but there will be one thing that he would like you to deal with. And then you'll find that there are more things in the future. All of the way through to glory, there will be stuff to root out. We'll just pull stuff out of our heart like weeds. Pull it out of our heart. Until the day that you see him face to face, and as you gaze into his eyes of fire, you'll find that the root of hell in your heart is burnt up and gone. But until that day, there will be stuff to pull out. That's okay, that's normal, but we've got to do it. So don't worry if you're thinking, oh my word, I think Jesus might be saying something to me. That's wonderful. That's what's supposed to be happening. And that's what's going to keep happening. But we have got to do something about it. So why did they do it? Why did the Israelites feel that they needed this golden bull? Well, Psalm um, 106 kind of summarizes this story a little bit. It says, They made a calf in Horeb, this is verse 19, and worshipped a metal image. Horeb is um, Sinai. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their savior, who had done great things in Egypt. They forgot God their savior. That's what it is to worship an idol, is to forget God. To forget God. Let me just read the rest of it. Um, Wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, that's God, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. We'll get there in a second. But they forgot God. I think, how could you forget God, the almighty creator, the one who loves you with an everlasting love, the one who puts his spirit in you so that you can feel his love in your bones? How could you forget God? What a ridiculous thing to do, the one who you can see in every atom of the creation, the one who is around us at all times and for you and with you. How could you forget him? And yet, don't we do it every minute? I know I do. They forgot God. That's what idolatry is. And instead, they replaced him with a God they could see and touch. Because how much easier would it be if you could see God? And of course, they conveniently made the God they could see and touch with no mouth, because it's made of metal, um, because then he can't tell them to do anything. <laughs> Wonderful. A God we can worship who has no demands on our life and who therefore lets me do what I want. And they got straight on with doing that. Of course we wouldn't do the same thing, would we? So that's exactly what we do. We create an image of God. Sometimes it's even just an image of God. It looks a lot like God, but he lets us do what we want. He doesn't have any requirements. doesn't ask anything of us. doesn't expect anything from us. doesn't ask us to do tough things. That's not God. He is for you too much to leave you as you are. He's going to ask you to do tough stuff because he wants you to be more like him. Why did they want God's what? Well, primarily, I think, that they were vulnerable. <laughs> They're insecure. And it's when we feel like that, perhaps because we've experienced times of trouble, something's gone a bit wrong in our lives, we've had some pain, that it's very tempting to change our image of God into something who will give us what we want. Something who will make it easier for us. Because it's so much easier to worship a, a, an idol. God who can't talk back. And there's a connection for them to what they know from before. And actually, 
did you notice when I, I listed off some possible examples of idols that many of those things I've said are just how people in the wider world live all the time? That's why it's tempting for us too. That's what everyone else you know is doing. It's very easy to fall into those patterns of thinking and doing because it's what everyone else does. And I think it actually, it, because they struggled to see and believe in the spiritual world, so they had to make a physical God. Now we might think, but we don't do that, but we do struggle to see and believe in the spiritual world even more than they did. It's why we think, say, about ourselves as though um, our bodies and our thoughts and our feelings are the most important thing. Why we think that what we want should be the case, because who else would tell us what we should do? Because surely this is all there is. If we find ourselves thinking like that, it's because we don't really perceive the spiritual world that goes on all around us. So, they make their idol like we make ours. Moses and Yahweh are up on the mountain, and they begin to have a conversation where Yahweh, that's the Old Testament word, name of God, um, turns to Moses and tells him what the people have done. And Yahweh is, is angry. And he says he'd like to wipe the people out. And Moses says, okay, but wipe me out too. And it seems to be that on the basis of that, of Moses' complete identification with the people of Israel, that God says, oh, okay, I won't. And the reason that that is good news, friends, is because we don't just have Moses, who was a wise but flawed leader to identify with us. We have God himself come as a human in Jesus who has completely identified with his people, which means that if you're starting to think, ah, yeah, there is some stuff in my heart I have to do something about, well, know this. Jesus has identified with you completely, which means that you will never be crushed for what you've done and thought and felt, that your ability or otherwise to root out the idols is not the ultimate grounding of who you are before God. He loves you because he's chosen to love you, and he always will. That you will find, if you follow him, that God is for you in all things, however well you do at rooting out these idols, because Jesus has completely identified with you. He's for you. And so therefore, let's, let's do the hard thing, and let's change ourselves or ask him to help us change ourselves. So Moses identifies with them. He stands in the gap, as it said in the psalm I read, like Jesus does for us. And then Moses goes down the mountain in anger. He meets Joshua on the way. He's kind of heard some of the noises and not seen what's happening at either end of the mountain. Um, and then they get down to the camp, and they hear the tumult of the revelry. And Moses sees what's going on. And in anger, he takes the two tablets of stone written in by the finger of God. These are the most valuable physical objects that at that point and perhaps I guess ever have ever existed because God's literal finger wrote them and then in anger at what he sees and to demonstrate what is happening in front of them he hurls them on the ground and they smash as though he would picked up a Fabergé egg and smashed it, or you know, broken the spine of a paperback. You know, something com so completely disgusting. <laughs> Ignore that last one. Um, but he's done something. He's, I guess, making a physical sign of what he's seen happen. These are the uh, the proof of the covenant. These stones. He smashes them because that's what the people have done. They've broken it before it even really started, and to show them, a, a kind of as a warning. 
And then he comes down into the camp. He finds out what's happened. Aaron says, oh, I just put the rings in the fire and a bull jumped out, um, which Aaron seems to think is a believable excuse. Uh, and then Moses, he takes the bull and he burns it with fire and he crushes it to a powder and he puts it in the water, it says, and then makes them drink it, which seems quite extreme. Now, I read that and I, think, I kind of picture sort of like Moses fought, made them false drink it. I think what it means is he put it in every water source. So whenever they went to drink water, some of the idol was mixed in with it. And I think, why would he do that? Well, I think two reasons. One, it is impossible to remake that idol by that point. It's impossible because the material has been so scattered and destroyed, no way it could be reused for that purpose. And two, it's a visual lesson for them because he's showing them what the idol really was. Because as they drink it and then excrete it, we find out what it really was. It's made of poop. And that's, that's kind of the point... <laughs> that he's trying to make. He's saying that this, this essentially is excrement. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I have destroyed it so you can't reuse it, and I want you to see that it is excrement. We need to do the same thing <laughs> with the stuff that we find in our hearts. Now, this, it'll, help you, it'll help you remember, honest. Um, I could talk about poop more if it helps, but I don't know. Um, we need to, no, we need to do the same thing. We need to do the same thing. How do we do the same thing? You've spotted something in your heart maybe tonight or just a, a glimmer of it and you need to tease it out over the next few days. What do you do? Well, the first thing you do before God, it can help to do this with someone else, but before God is you, you repent. What does that mean? That means you say to God, I do not want that anymore. I would like to turn around. That's what we used to repent. I would like to turn around. I do not want to have anything to do with that way of thinking or that way of acting anymore. And then I'd recommend that you renounce it. And what that means is in prayer before God, you declare what the lies are that you've been believing, you know, that this thing is good for you, that this is better than Jesus, whatever it might be. You declare some truth. You identify the fact that this is the devil's work in your life. And you say, you don't want it anymore. And then you reorder your life. Now, what that will look like will very much depend on what we're talking about. But you do your best to find a way to make it so that you don't slip back into that same way of thinking. Try and make some practical changes to your life in order to help you not fall back into that way of thinking. Now, how easy that is will very much depend on what it is and what you do would be very different for each individual, but you think hard about how can I reorder my life? Repent, renounce, reorder my life. And you know that if you do that, Jesus will deal with it for you. Because you, you think, oh, I haven't done very much of it. I've kind of prayed some stuff and maybe made a few changes. Yeah, Jesus will deal with it for you if you commit to it. He is, all we're doing when we're, saying, when we're trying to get rid of our idols and we're trying to burn them and crush them and drink them in the water, what we're trying to do is essentially say, Jesus, help me. Knowing full well that you have no power to fix it yourself, but knowing full well that he has promised that if you ask him, he will send you the Spirit and he will change your heart. And he is faithful to answer that kind of prayer. He'll do it straight away. And then Moses, I'm going to read from verse 25. It says, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, that's more polite Bible language. I mean, Moses wrote this, so polite language he's chosen for the sort of stuff they were getting up to. Um, for Aaron had let them break loose, the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, 
who is on the Lord's side, come to me. Or literally, whoever for Yahweh to me. He shouts out, whoever for Yahweh to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. I'll just pause there for a second. I think I read this the first time through and thought, well, what must be happening is that somehow the, the sons of Levi didn't worship the calf. And they're now kind of identifying themselves as we're, we're the people who stayed true to Yahweh. Except the two most famous sons of Levi in Israel are, are Moses and Aaron, which I think makes it probably pretty clear to us that some of these, at least, some of these Levites will have also gone and worshipped the bull, like everyone else. Which means that we're supposed to read this sentence and think, hang on, they've just been forgiven because they've just repented. Because to repent is to respond to the question, whoever for Yahweh to me, and go, yeah, please, I'm in. Whatever has happened before. See, whatever has happened, whether you worship the bull or not, whatever has happened before, they've now associated themselves with God. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. It seems quite extreme. I think it's probably how most of us would, would read that and think that seems pretty extreme. And we feel that way partly because I don't think we get how bad this is. That early on in the people of God's history that they would turn away from him it has incredible consequences for the rest of the world. And it, it could not stand. They couldn't let a hint of it be in the camp. It is impossible, or was impossible, to justify for them keeping them. That's too dangerous. But the thing we need to know is that the reason that there will never be a call to kill any of us with swords for our idolatry is because Jesus has died for us. So that will never, ever, ever have to happen. Because we are all riddled with it. And yet, he's died in our place. So that does not need to happen to us. Well, I think, again, the first time I read this, I sort of pictured the Levites with their swords just kind of running indiscriminately around the camp and hitting people as they found them, I suppose. I don't think that's what's going on. The language implies a kind of careful search. And so I think what's happening is that the Levites, they're going around, they're going up to each person they meet and saying, are you with Yahweh or are you with the bull? And when the person goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with Yahweh, they go, fantastic, and then move on to the next person. Are you with Yahweh or are you with the bull? And when someone kind of equivocates or they're not sure, they say with the bull, then, well, they put the sword in. But they don't ask questions about what happened before. No one asks, what did you do last night? What did you do when we all got up to play? No one's asking that. Every person is given a clean opportunity to respond and say, do you want to be with Yahweh or not? And if they say, yeah, complete forgiveness. And actually, that is a question that we all need to be asked as well. Are you with Yahweh? Or as we probably put it, are you with Jesus? Are you with Jesus? 
Because if so, then we must abandon our idols and burn them and crush them and drink the water and see them for what they are. And that is a question that Jesus would ask to each of us tonight. Are you with Jesus? If so, wonderful. Let's do something about it. And then Moses, um, he says he needs to make atonement for the people. He goes back up the mountain to talk to God. Uh, they have a, a similar conversation to the one they had earlier, where God points out the, how terrible this sin is, and Moses again identifies with the people and stands in the gap for them. And then God reiterates the, the problem of sin, and this is this, so I'll read from verse um, 33. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So he kind of reiterates it. And he says, but now go. Lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go with you. Moses stands in the gap for them. He stands in the gap for them. And then they're told, okay, go. That is exactly what happens to us when Jesus says, are you with me? And we go, yeah, that means I need to change this, doesn't it? It means I need to leave that behind. It means I need to, need to stop looking at this or stop doing this or put this aside. It means I need to leave that pattern of thinking. He says, great, then come and follow me. We've got some places to go and some things to do. Just like he said to the people of Israel. That is what he would say to each of us. His response every single time that he would say, you need to do something about this. And we'd go, yes, so we do. Help me. would be wonderful. I forgive you. Come and follow me. And we need to hear that. It's like, yeah, we've got to do something about our idols, about the, the way that we're thinking, about the patterns that are wrong in our lives. But we need to also to hear that as soon as you begin to, Jesus will always say, well done. That's wonderful. I love you so much. Come and follow me. Oh, and by the way, what about this thing? Because that's always how it works. He is so totally for us that even the tiniest step in his direction brings incredible delight. And in fact, you may not always have noticed it, but it says in the Psalms that he rescued me because he delighted in me. Which means before we did anything, before we even managed the tiniest little step to deal with the things in our heart or to move towards him, he said, I, I am so for you. I am completely delighted with you. It's from that that we can then deal with our idols. I am completely delighted with you, says the Lord your God, if you're a follower of Jesus. Not, oh, yeah, I love you, but. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, yeah, I've got some stuff, you've got some stuff to sort out. I want you to be better than you are. I leave, love you too much to leave you on your own. But he is completely and utterly delighted with you. He's proud of you. He's for you. He spends his day writing the songs that he will then sing over your bed at night. Have you ever noticed that that's what the scripture says Jesus does with the night time? <laughs> he sits by your bedside and sings over you. I honestly think he'd have better things to do. <laughs> but he does not think that way. He's for us. Dear friends. Are you for Jesus? If so, crush the idols. So what we're going to do now, the band are going to come, and in a moment we are going to worship again the one true God who is worthy.